You're watching UPN, the United Paramount Network. Hello out there, Aqua Lads and Aqua Lasses. My name is Johnny C, and like the signature up front said, welcome to UPN. Unveiling potent numbers. This is our second episode here on this mini journey that we've undertaken here in the Aqua Cave exclusively to chart out the rationalization behind the success, continuing success, eh, I'm not really sure. One could argue, though, it's hotter than ever, WWF SmackDown. Specifically, the SmackDown 6, the first six episodes of SmackDown in 1999. I guess you could call it the first season of SmackDown, but... Uh, that only really works if you're taking a look at it on a yearly perspective. And while we're not trying to go through an entire year of episodes, like I said, we're focusing on the very first six. The six most important episodes of SmackDown, I suppose, you could argue, up until their switch over to Fox. Because once they transition to Fox, you gotta believe that that is what Vince has been striving for his entire career. A weekly television show on one of the big networks. And while I know it has flirted over time with like the CW, My Network TV, whatever the fuck that was, uh, you know, here and there, getting on Fox, NBC, CBS, or ABC had to have been the goal. And, uh, you know, there's there, Fox and WWE have been strange bedfellows over the years from their strange 92 uh, Saturday Night's main event run up into, like, you know, the modern era where there were always rumors persisting uh, that they wanted to get into bed with Fox. And one thing I will say about the current Fox presentation, which is not what we came here for, but I started rambling about it, I do sort of appreciate the sports bend that they put on it, meaning that the graphics packages sort of gel up with Fox's sports presentation. And, you know, when we get there and they do the introduction, you know, Michael Cole will say things from segment to segment like, this episode of SmackDown is brought to you by, I don't know, Geico. And then maybe before the main event, I, I don't know if they do it every week. I know I've seen it happen at least once where they'll be like, you know, the main event brought to you by Castrol GTX Drive Hard. I mean... Like I said, it's a very sports-based presentation. I appreciate that because, of course, we all know it's a show uh, with tons of athleticism built into it, and I want to take anything away from that. But I think that little, that little touch makes it seem sort of like it's a big-time presentation. Because I would argue, especially now more than ever with streaming wars, that um, a live sporting event is easier to ignore than ever. Unless it's, of course, one of your signature things. So having a big-time presentation for your product, especially when it's coming at you on a weekly basis. And I watched a baseball game last night on Apple TV+. Plus. It's the first time I had done that. Uh, I guess as another side note, I'm kind of tracking the Los Angeles Angels this year. I've gone uh, all-in on the uh, MLB packaging. So, of course, when I switched over to Amazon to watch the game last night against the Blue Jays, I was like, what the... F and now I'm revealing in time when I'm recording this. But uh, the Angels happened to be on Apple TV+. Plus, and I loved... I mean, they were constantly throwing stats at me the entire time. Uh, in the lower right-hand corner, they even had the percentage... Uh, 
the you know the on base percentage of the individual that was batting. And uh, I've been watching a lot of baseball on a lot of networks. And Apple TV Plus had a really unique presentation, and that's why I appreciate the presentation that Fox gives SmackDown. And hey, it wasn't a complete waste of time because I've already uh, ranked this show, and I know that the presentation uh, visually is going to be a big part of the aspects I want to cover here in episode two of the Smackdown six but it is episode two in our canon and technically it is the second ever episode of Smackdown but it's the first episode of Smackdown since the show was picked up for a full season run the last episode that we covered here on UPN was the pilot episode which took place in May of 1999 so First important big note tonight, folks, we are dealing with quite a time jump. And we're going to see that in our presentation where we are establishing which characters are main characters, our heroes, our villains, etc., etc. And now, if it's your first time tuning into UPN, let me talk about what it is that we specifically do here. As I mentioned, we're reviewing the first six episodes of SmackDown ever, but we're not reviewing them from a critical standpoint. We're analyzing these shows uh, based on an outline that I've come up with where I award the show points in three different categories. Acting, writing, and directing. There's also a fourth called intangible points, which I'll cover here at the end. So how do you earn a point? It's very simple. You earn an acting point for presenting an acting moment that generates a positive reason for a viewer to maintain watching the program. It's like, uh, what the fuck does that mean? Well, it's real simple. In our first episode, I believe the rating uh, that the show earned in the Nielsen ratings was a 5.8, which means that episode needed to score 58 points to prove that it was worth its weight in viewership. And those points are arbitrarily awarded by me, but like I said, within the categories of acting, writing, and directing. So an acting point, like I said, is awarded for a multitude of different things. It could be a subtle choice that an actor makes. And by an actor, I mean a sports entertainer. And by a sports entertainer, I mean a wrestler. So, you know, let's say The Rock does something in a very, in a way that's, that's worth an acting point. It's The Rock, so you can insert your own thing here. I'm sure you know he's worth quite a bit of them. Uh, a writing point, pushing across the narrative of the show to your audience. Or a directing point, making a choice with cameras, editing, overall presentation that's out of the actor's hands, out of the uh, broadcast team or the writer's hands to convey ideas to us. That's how you get a directing point. And then, each episode, I'm allowed to award five intangible points for literally whatever I want. I believe in our first episode, I gave one to a guy in the audience that had a sign. Of course, this sign was predicting the forthcoming of Chris Jericho, so I felt it warranted that point. But it's a nice way to take my personal taste into consideration. Because like I said, there's a big difference between the the rock making fun of Triple H's monkey shirt or monkey ass or co- I don't know like you know imagine you know Triple H is being told by the rock he's going to shove a water bottle up his monkey ass now okay that's funny all right but I don't know if it makes me want to not turn the channel and that's what these points are for because they represent actual ratings so an acting point, writing point, and directing point need to somehow uh, represent 
a turning point for the audience, meaning that the audience member in question would continue to watch the show, and this point proves why. We could go ahead and get in to the second episode here on UPN, but I do recommend if you haven't checked out our first one, go ahead and go back and check it out. It is available here in the Aqua Cave, as every episode will be. And the only reason I recommend you check it out is because this show while it is designed to be entertaining, is not designed to spend a lot of time talking about or deep diving into storylines. Of course, we go point by point, and I explain why each one was earned, but at the same time, we're not reviewing matches here or deep diving into storylines or what have you. So, if you want to sort of compare where our characters stand now, as opposed to where they stood before the time jump, which I will cop to is a very unique thing uh, that needs to be accounted for, I recommend you take a listen to that first episode to see how these characters were presented, and then come back and give us a listen. But, if you're ready to proceed forward, let's talk about Season 1, Episode 1, as Peacock would call it. You and I know it's the second episode of SmackDown, but it's the first episode as a brand new weekly episodic television program, as they would love to say in the modern era. So this episode of WWF SmackDown comes to us at what would have been, I suppose, the conclusion of a pretty big three-day spread into WWF's history. On August 22nd, which was Sunday, we would have had SummerSlam 99. Uh, The next day on the 23rd, we would have had Raw, which of course has some major events that we'll talk about in just a second. And then taped on the 24th would have been this episode of SmackDown on the Tuesday. So pretty big darn three-day stretch. Of course, SmackDown did air on Thursdays on UPN. Which leads us to this statistic. It's episode one proper of SmackDown, and it airs... August 26, 1999, taped the 24th, 99, coming to us from, oh boy, Kansas City, Missouri, which I would love to reflect on positively, as I have some funny gags that go with Kansas City and Tammy Sitch from my WCW days, but we are in the Kemper Arena, which indeed, just, let me do some math here, good God, Almost three months earlier, exactly, would have been where Owen Hart tragically passed away. You know, if you're WWF, do you maybe reschedule in a different location? I don't know. It's off-putting to me now, in 2022, thinking about the amount of time that actually passed between the event and this taping, and even I'm thinking that's not enough, and I've got 23 years of hindsight. I don't know. It especially hurts and hits hard to me when you consider how much of an MVP the Blue Blazer character was to the pilot episode of SmackDown. It's just very upsetting. Well, not upset. It's just, you know, like I, uh, here I am like, I knew Owen Hart. He was my best friend. No, that's, that's all I'm saying. I'm just, it's just, it's too bad. I guess that's the way I can put it. I can I can stop trying to put a shine on my my thoughts and just be like, it's sad. It's it bums me out. I guess that's the easiest way to put it. But we're here and we're moving on. This episode received a 4.2 Nielsen rating, which means that this episode of SmackDown only needs to score 42 points. I say only because the pilot episode scored a massive 5.8, which equated to 58 UPN points. That being said, 
that pilot episode was not only trying to be something very special because it was a quote-unquote special episode of WWF programming, but it was also trying to, you know, get this series picked up for a full order. So I'm sure they were extremely happy with that rating, but they definitely put uh, balls to the wall, if you pardon the expression, with the forming of a new faction and uh, some massive superstars appearing on that initial broadcast. But like I said, this is coming off a very hot pay-per-view weekend, so you would think that there might be uh, even more of a desire to check out what's happening. This rating could be affected by the fact that a major event happened on Raw, and the audience may be trained to believe that two massive events can't happen in the same week. I don't know. It's not like I have empirical evidence to support that. I'm just kind of shooting from the hip. But... The program begins, we get our fantastic signature as always, and right away, as usual it seems on this show, we get our very first point for the opening promo. And it is a writing point because it sets the scene. Now it's a very interesting opening video, and I'm not going to try to go into the weeds too much, but this is specifically why I gave it the point. It introduces a lot of the new concepts that are going to be important not only for tonight's show, but it sets up the new reality since the time jump. Because remember, we're evaluating this from a standpoint of we've had the pilot episode and now this is our next episode. It's almost as if these three months of programs didn't happen. And in a strange, unique way, they didn't uh, if you're going from a UPN perspective. So this opening video begins with two words that will frighten most internet wrestling fans, Triple H. And it walks us through a recap of events that led to him winning his first WWF championship. Now the video is edited together in a very interesting way that makes it seem like he almost had a virtuous journey uh, to this championship until we get to the portion that covers the Raw episode directly before this episode of SmackDown because we show the fully loaded strap match. We show, or yeah, it was a fully loaded strap match with the train fully loaded logo, fully loaded end of an era, first blood match, fully loaded strap match. Yeah, I think it's the same pay-per-view where he beats The Rock to become the number one contender. And then, of course, it, it goes to SummerSlam where it's like he's beating uh, Steve Austin and he's so close and then that evil mankind interferes and cuts off the pin. So it kind of makes Triple H look like the good guy. Of course, until we get to the Raw portion where he attacks Jim Ross. Then they pile on the villainy by adding Shane into the mix as a Triple H ally. So what this does establish is where these two characters are now since the pilot, Okay. We get an inclination that Shane and Triple H are together. And, of course, we see uh, Triple H win the title on Raw by beating Mankind. So we establish Shane and Triple H are still big villains, as they were on our first episode. We also establish where our two big heroes are. Uh, I made a joke, but uh, I feel like it's relevant, so I'll say it again. You know, the pilot really established Steve Austin and The Rock as your Batman and Superman. Okay, no, we're not saying who's who. That's not the point of this. But they're your two big stars. They're your Iron Man, your Captain America. They're your two featured performers, your lunchbox guys, etc., etc. So this video package tells us that Austin was beaten after the SummerSlam match by Triple H with a chair. And they, I think there's a throwaway line like, Austin's been taken out by Triple H. So we may or may not see Steve Austin. The video package lays the groundwork that Austin is, in quotation marks, I'm doing the finger quotes thing here, injured. And we are shown that Triple H attacked The Rock 
on Raw with a chair before he won the title. So you establish that The Rock is still around as a big good guy, and he's at odds with your evil champion. And that, even though it's, um, you know, it's a, it's a very, you know, I've talked about it longer than the package it actually was, but the reason it gets the point for writing is it's establishing the universe, pardon the pun, <laughs> that, or, or and it's not really a pun, but the overused expression, WWE Universe, that is, pal, that this is where we're at for this episode of SmackDown. The next point comes almost instantly after the SmackDown opening credits, and I've already blown my first intangible point, but I have to, because my goodness, the Ovaltron is here, as well as the uh, Season 1 SmackDown staging area with the multiple ovals. Um, You know, it's fantastic that we now have our own presentation for SmackDown, and it represents the nature of the fact that we are a new weekly series uh, on television with a new look. Uh, I did give it the intangible point because it's something that really matters to me as a viewer. I don't know if this is universally applicable, like establishing the new continuity like the first point does, so it's intangible. I love the fact, just as a side note, that somebody in the audience has an I'd buy that for a dollar sign, referencing one of my favorite films, Robocop, which if you haven't seen, you should watch. The King does make a great new audience statement. Because Triple H comes out for the opening promo, but tri- but the King says that normally you'd end the show with the champion, but tonight we're not going to save the best part of the show for last. And that is good world building, but I'm not going to give it any points, because now that we're a series, uh, a full weekly running series, and I've seen the ratings and I know that the points are lower, I'm going to... I'm going to tighten up just a little bit on the points and make sure that everyone really contributes something. Triple H begins into a promo. They note that Jim Ross is commentating with a broken freaking arm. I think I've heard that somewhere before, but it made me laugh. And Triple H has four words for us. I am the WWF champion. Look at the adjective. The. Um, you know, I mentioned look at the adjective because much like Triple H's good buddy Kevin Nash, uh, Triple H doesn't seem to be able to count, whereas Kevin Nash doesn't know how to diagram a sentence. But no worries, Big Kev. I really am not good at that either. The third point comes, and it's a directing point, because The Rock, who is our biggest star and our hero, according to the video package, is watching the interview backstage. Now, why does this get a point? Because it's telling us, don't turn away. Even if you may not like what this very tan male, uh, is saying in the ring with a belt around his waist, we know that The Rock is your hero. He is Superman. He is Batman. And he's here waiting in the wings. He's coming, I promise. And uh, I think that's imperative because Triple H isn't necessarily a selling point. I don't know that Triple H has ever been a selling point, but that's a discussion for another show. The Rock is here, and that's why you get the point. This Triple H promo, which I'm not going to get into the weeds of, but in, in my opinion was very bad, very bland, and boring. And I grew up very, very pro this era of Triple H. I was stoked when he won the belt. I was more excited than all get out. I was actually cheering for Triple H at WrestleMania 2000, by God. And, uh, no, man, that was a great time. A good show to watch. Uh, WrestleMania 2000 is one of my... I'm off. But, hey, we're talking about Triple H as a heel in his first championship run, so I'm going to stick with it. WrestleMania 2000, 
Um, not only did I watch every single hour of WrestleMania all day long, which granted did test test my patience, and I, I was amazed though at how they were able to retcon their major stars out of their own WrestleMania history, a podcast for another time, but my house was full of like 20 to 23 individuals uh, by the time WrestleMania 2000 was over. As the show proper started, my regular paper, my regular friends who would watch wrestling pay-per-views were already there, but throughout the night, a smattering of people just started arriving, and it was so much fun to see how fringe it got. It was like friends of friends, or friends who don't really care about wrestling, uh, but want to be a part of the experience. And by the time the main event came around, there were about 20 to 25 teenagers in my living room watching uh, WrestleMania 16 or WrestleMania 2000. And myself and one other individual were the only ones cheering for Triple H of the massive four-way match. Uh, which I think is one of the reasons that four-way match gets a pass from me. Uh, I mean, it's fun. It's a little long. Uh, you can argue about what the main event of WrestleMania 2000 should have been. But my God, it was such a fun, personal experience. Off of that tangent, though... Let's get to our next point. It's an acting point, and it's point number four, and it's awarded to The Rock, because he has indeed interrupted this interview. And he says, tonight, uh, one of two, th- you know, tonight you and me are going to wrestle in that ring for the championship match. So, right away, he's setting up a massive hook for you to stick around for the end of the show. But, he delivers a pretty fun line. He says that Triple H can do two things about it. Absolutely nothing, and like it. And yes, the humor helps me award the point, but as I said, the points need to be related to something, you know, that really equates to viewership ratings, and a big hook for the ending is something like that. I also noticed Triple H is very hoarse uh, in his voice, which is irrelevant, but if you take into consideration this was the night after Raw, I'm sure he had a hell of a night with his buddies. The Rock does hit a lot of variants of his normal catchphrases, and of course, he is on fire, But I'm really starting to notice here that The Rock is indeed, like many people have noted throughout the years, he's a time thief. He's really eating up a lot of screen time here that I'm thinking could potentially be used for something else. And something else immediately makes its presence felt as, oh, oh, Sean is heard over the loudspeakers. Commissioner HBK is here, and yikes, he's definitely rocking a Miami Vice look tonight. A pro, though, is that it's sort of a dual Miami Vice look. He looks like he could either be the cop that's arresting you on Miami Vice due to his white sports coat, or, by looking like the fact that he's in no condition to work, he could be one of the, you know, uh, convicts or the person that gets arrested on Miami Vice. So good for him. He is the commissioner. He's Commissioner Heartbreak, and he does confirm the main event tonight for the gold and he makes himself the special guest referee. Shane McMahon then appears in the ring somehow and indicates that since he is the owner of the World Wrestling Federation, he is ref too. Heartbreak tells Shane that he's going to be busy tonight. And the reason I recapped up to that point is because here is where point number five comes into play, and it is a writing point. The Shawn Michaels character explains to the audience how his role works within the World Wrestling Federation. And while a sentence that contains those words in that configuration may make you want to chuckle, like, come on, dude, it's professional wrestling you're talking about, I do want to make this point. This is a new 
television program for a hypothetical new audience who doesn't understand the storyline hierarchy of how decisions are made in the WWF. And if you're going to take it seriously, as televisions do take themselves, regardless of whether or not it's a comedy... um, you know, it's not like it's some 22-minute, half-hour sitcom when the nagging wife is yelling at the husband. She doesn't stop, look at the camera, and be like, oh, by the way, this is a TV show, so don't worry. I swear to God I'm not a bitch in real life. No, that doesn't happen. We live within the confines of the television show, and that's what this little speech from Shawn Michaels does. It is a writing point, and he indicates that his role in the WWF as commissioner gives him the authority to book matches for superstars. And he says Shane had a four-star performance at SummerSlam. I wonder if that's what Meltzer gave him. I didn't bother to look up. But since that makes Shane a wrestler now, uh, he gets to book him in a match against Mankind, the individual he screwed over on Monday Night Raw. And like I said, regardless of how you feel about whether or not Shawn Michaels should be the commissioner or Shane is the owner, it's convoluted, blah, blah, blah. I actually think it's quite kind of simple, and that's one of the reasons I like this point. This is world building, and it establishes rules for your new viewers, so it gets a point. At this moment, uh, Mankind does arrive with a microphone, and it's way too many people out here with microphones for one segment. Uh, I don't award him any points, but since we're here and we're talking about it, I love uh, Mick Foley reusing The Rock's catchphrases, to, uh, but as Mankind, and as opposed to like a... A six hundred dollar electric sh- electrifying shirt. He's got like the three dollar Salvation Army shirt. The tie he got for free. You know, it's just it's yeah. You know, these are the reasons the mankind character endured in all of its various versions. He just uh, was entertaining as all get out. A brawl does break out for all you keeping score at home for uh, the storylines. Uh, the Mean Street Posse arrived to assist Shane. Uh, most of them eat rock bottoms. We get a gas bottom and an abs bottom, but no Rodney bottom. So, unfortunately, the rock doesn't get to run the trifecta train on the Mean Street Posse. Uh, a talking head segment as the announcers set up the main event for the evening. It doesn't get him any points, but Jerry Lawler does have a Lawler for Mayor button. He's like the goddamn penguin from Batman Returns. Uh, it seems like some sort of evil organization is trying to put Jerry Lawler in power in Memphis, perhaps, so they can take control like it's Gotham City. I don't believe that in real life, but I'm going to run with that narrative for entertainment purposes. The announcers announce a triple threat tag team championship match later. And, of course, this is a segment that's designed to let the viewer want to know uh, why they should stick around. Finally, they earn a point, and it's point number six. And it's not even a writing point. It's an intangible point because they announced tonight Chris Jericho is making his in-ring debut against the Road Dog, And a 1999 Johnny C would have been all over this, hence the intangibles. They also indicate the test is waiting for an answer from Stephanie McMahon for his proposal. Jeff Jarrett and his lady friends walk to the ring, as does Mr. Ass, as we finally hit our first commercial break at 20 minutes and 45 seconds. So let's round that up to 21 minutes, because when they come back from commercial, they're not going to do anything in 15 seconds to earn a point. So we got six points total in 21 minutes of television time. Our first episode of SmackDown, the pilot, went to commercial at 20 minutes even and had already earned 10 points. Now, I guess I expect a trend downward, perhaps because our real-life ratings are not as high. So I'm not as 
worried that this episode isn't up to par at this point because 6-21, and 21, considering we only need to get to, what is it, 42 as opposed to needing to get to 58, it's not a bad spot to be in. But I'd feel remiss if I didn't mention that this opening segment didn't nearly do as much real-world excitement as it did for me as I had watching the pilot. The pilot was a much better experience. We come back from commercial, and I'm just thinking that I'm, I'm really sure that Jeff Jarrett and Deborah are really happy to be back in this arena and performing. All right. Uh, it is Jeff Jarrett versus Badass Billy Gunn, as they call him, and I'm very confused as to why they're calling him Badass Billy Gunn. He's uniquely positioned in this match as a babyface, even though it's literally two days after uh, having the match with The Rock at SummerSlam. And I really, from a, from a meta standpoint, Johnny C, or me, myself, the person watching, I don't understand the, the, the face-heel alignment here. But I'm just going to go with it because, like I said, I'm not here to dig into storylines. Point number seven arrives when B.A. Billy Gunn, again, not being called Mr. S. Is this like a UPN thing? Uh, but he earns an acting point because he works most of this match in a full babyface sprint mode. And it reminds me of, like, early Sting. Now, I don't really have, like, evidence. It's just a gut feeling. But I'm impressed by uh, B.A. Baracus or B.A. Gun, I guess, uh, Mr. Badass here. There's a very weird Dutch angle that occurs when Billy Gunn misses a splash, a Dutch angle being more like a tilted angle, kind of like you would see in the old, and again, I'm, I'm referencing Batman again, the old Batman 60s TV show when they were in the villain's lair. Uh, you know, it was sort of at a Dutch angle, like uh, an incline, if you will. It doesn't get any points, but it, it stood out to me as unique, so I wanted to mention it. The finish of the match comes when China hits Deborah with a guitar, which she takes very poorly, I might add, that being Deborah, and it distracts Jarrett for Mr. Ass to, or Badass, excuse me, not Mr., to get the schoolboy finish. So, folks, I'm here to tell you, relax. All the way back in 1999, they were doing the distraction schoolboy finish. I didn't remember stuff like this happening back in the day, but it just goes to show that sometimes we don't realize that what we're complaining about has been a symptom all along. The next point comes from China, and it's point number eight, and it's an acting point because China and Mr. Ass get into an argument. Mr. Ass goes to untie his trunks and turn around, clearly ready to moon the China character, but China gets the acting point because as soon as he starts untying his trunks, China immediately goes down for the low blow and just really sticks it to Billy Gunn, indicating that she, you know the China character is not an idiot. She knows these guys, and she knows their tricks, and she knows how to stay a step ahead of the game. It might be safe to say that I'm a 1999 China mark. If you don't believe me, check out the Multiverse of Fabulousness archives over at the North-South Connection Podcast Network where I rebooked WrestleMania 2000 or WrestleMania 16 if you want to get the full extent of my early China love. Lillian Garcia interviews Al Snow in the back, which is a unique configuration, I must say. And she's uh, asking him if he has words for the big boss man who will be arriving later with Pepper. Al Snow begs the boss man for the life of Pepper. I have a strong desire to make a bacon strips joke, but I don't. Point number nine arrives next from Y2J. It's a brief interaction with the Fink, but by God, I love this uh, version of Chris Jericho. So he gets an acting point for instructing the Fink how to properly shine his boots. 
it's a fun little character moment. I love the fountain ponytail that he has and the callbacks to this, the Ralphus variant of his character from WCW having a Fink sidekick. I really love it as we head into commercial. Now, I didn't anticipate three points because this stretch was just really awful to me. I, I didn't really like it at all. Um, and, and from commercial to commercial, nothing really struck my fancy. And I, I'm not saying this as a, as a way to disprove the theory of my project, meaning that the, uh, these episodes of SmackDown were super hot. But man, not being involved and in, in the moment, I feel like, in the moment being like it's not 1999 and I'm not engulfed in these storylines and every twist and turn doesn't tickle my fancy as a viewer here. I'm wondering if this episode of SmackDown is going to hold up uh, in the long run. Now, if you want to talk about things that uh, ran long or had long-term booking, when we come back from a commercial, I immediately award the next point. And it is point number 10, and it's an intangible point, which means I have already used three of them. And we're only 10 points into this show. But by God, it's because Test is in the back, and he's in this unique hallway atrium type area. And the Test character is supposed to be nervous because he's awaiting an answer from Stephanie McMahon as he proposed to her on Monday evening. Now, why does it get a point? Well, it's a stupid-ass reason, which is why I used one of my intangibles. The ceiling makes it look as if Test is in that cool tube hallway type thing that Luke Skywalker gets into in Cloud City when he's fighting his daddy, the Darth Vader character, that is. Um, And it just reminded me of The Empire Strikes Back. I've been watching a lot of Star Wars lately, which you can hear all about here on the Aqua Cave on Stream Fighter 2, the show where we cover streaming content from all the various services out there. We recently covered the first two-episode premiere of Obi-Wan Kenobi from Disney+. And like I said, you can catch that on Stream Fighter 2, which is the show that covers those types of programs. And it's right here in the Aqua Cave. That was Vince McMahon selling my podcast feed. Thanks, Vinman. All right, so let's get into the next point. It's a directing point, and it's awarded to the precision entrance and pyrotechnics posing of Glenn Jacobs and Sean Waltman, that being X-Pac and Kane. Jesus, these guys were over, and they just really had their act down to a T. I know it's a silly thing to be in awe of because, in reality, it's one guy putting his hands up and down while the other guy uh, makes an X over his penis four times. But when Pac hits that fourth crotch chop and that firework goes off, the last uh, X forms, and then Kane puts his hands down and the pyro shoots out of the turnbuckle, uh, it don't get much better than that, folks. Now, this doesn't get a point. It's not part of the uh, number 11 directing point that I awarded to X-Pac and Kane and the directors for that. But X-Pac does have his little energy drink in his hands uh it was a green can and i am trying for the life of me it was like god was it like spike energy or something like that or hansen's hansen's energy oh christ i don't know something like that it was a green can and you know obviously if i were to go out and find some this this is awfully dangerous for johnny c because now we're playing in two worlds that i really like a little too much that being niche food related products and professional wrestling like just to give you an example i'm the dumbass who when surge was released for a limited amount of time uh bought like 
a 12 pack off Amazon for like 40 bucks. And then I did it again, like four or five more times. I also notoriously, when, gosh, I almost said Star Wars, when Ghostbusters Answer the Call, that's the um, Kristen Wiig version of Ghostbusters, came out in theaters, I think in like 2015, uh, they brought back High C Ecto Cooler, which, mind you, is the greatest drink in the history of our sport. And uh, I went to a Kroger here in town where I live, uh, and they had 10 packs of Ecto Cooler juice boxes, the little teeny tiny high C Ecto Cooler juice boxes. So we're talking, you know, I'm a grown ass man, uh, and I could drink a juice box in like one swig, you know, if I really, really wanted to. Now, those things, luckily, because I was catching them in a retail environment, I believe were on sale for like $1.99. I mean, I bought every one they had and had a lot of Ecto Cooler for a decent amount of time, but I, I bought every. I. I mean, I, I might have walked out there spending like 40 or 50 bucks just on Ecto Cooler. And like I said, they were two bucks a piece. So I, I got quite a few. Um, man, all of that from Xbox Energy Drink. That's how nostalgia works, guys. So the Acolytes are still evil here. They still have the painting on their chests. And the Unholy Alliance is here as well. That's going to be our triple threat tag team uh, title match. And the Unholy Alliance are the champions stemming out of SummerSlam. Taker is watch, is walking very gingerly to the ring. Now, that's not point-related. I just want to mention out because we know that here, as we continue the SmackDown journey, we're going to see The Undertaker uh, go through quite a unique phase of his career that leads to an even more unique phase later down the road. They announced, that being the announcers, that Raw is going to be preempted to 11 p.m. start time on the East Coast this week. It's a 8.30-99 Raw. It's interesting. That's the day that the U.S. Open tennis tournament started. I did do a little research, so I'm imagining it was that. But the show was also held in the Fleet Center in Boston. And I'm wondering if anybody in the no-so PTBN-like family went to any of that, went to that show. Because if it really started, because there was no branding indicating that it wouldn't be live, okay? Now, I know WWF is one to stick by its advertising. They're going to throw, like, little comments in there, like, we're coming at you live at 11 p.m. Like, they they are totally the type of company that would try to make that a selling point, and I, I'm not besmirching them for that. It's not a bad thing. Um, so I'm wondering if this went live, uh, you know, at 11 at the Fleet Center, or are we talking, like, they aired it, like, straight to tape? I mean, like, they treated it if it was live, and they just took the tape and... I don't know. I, I didn't want to spend a whole lot of time researching it, but if anybody knows anything, you know, hit me up on Twitter at the Johnny C and uh, let me know. The next point is point number twelve, and it's an acting point, and it is awarded to Mr. Callaway himself, the Undertaker. Now, as the match is starting, the Undertaker gets down from his perch where he would be in a tag team scenario, and he goes over to the announce table. Jim Ross says, "I think we're about to be joined by the Undertaker," and King goes. The Undertaker? Oh, what a pleasure! And The Undertaker grabs a headset and he goes, Of course it's a pleasure. <laughs> Which is kind of goofy. But I give him the acting point because I'm like glued to my seat for this segment. I mean, I obviously am because I'm, I'm performing this show for you all. But when he when I realized he was going to be on commentary, I kind of tuckered in and made sure that you know I was ready to go and start typing some notes out. And I'm really listening to him because it sounds like this is going to be a fun version of the Undertaker character. Um, and of course, he's going to be doing commentary. He says that it's hard love 
for the big show. So where he's going to do color commentary and he makes the big show wrestle these guys uh, by himself to teach him some tough, hard love, which is probably the way he feels about Maven to this very day. You know, he could sit down and do guest commentary on some Raw and they'd be like, Undertaker, who's going to win this match between Ricochet and Damian Priest? And he'd be like, it doesn't matter who wins between these two because Maven, he's a lazy bum. I gave that kid every advantage that a wrestler could have given me. You know, if Harley Race laid down for me like that and I and I didn't live up to that potential, I would have killed myself. Because The Undertaker is definitely that type of guy, right? So, um, the match does start and it's very chaotic. Like I said, I'm not going to go through the match, but it was, it was a very entertaining match. It did get some points. Um... The Undertaker does deliver another great line on commentary, though. I'm sorry. I don't want to, you know, muck through the weeds. But he says, I'm tag team champions because I want to (laughs) be. And again, like, where does the Undertaker character start and Mark Calloway, the man, begin? Because, you know, I'm not saying he's like a behind-scenes politician like Hogan, like pointing to his contract. But I don't know. It's just kind of funny. Uh, It breaks down into a match where there are no tags. And the Big Show gets tossed over the top rope by Kane and Bradshaw. This leads to point number 13, and it's a director's point. Because as soon as uh, Big Show goes over the top rope and thuds on the floor, they smash cut straight to the Undertaker at the announce table. And he goes, excuse me. And he takes off his headset. And he goes over to the Big Show and smacks him. But the smash cut from the director getting straight in hard on Taker's face and seeing the disappointment and watching him throw down his headset was a great directing move, and I wanted to uh, reward it for that. The next point is point number 14, and it's an acting point. And it's awarded to everyone in the match that isn't The Undertaker. The Big Show has X-Pac in a powerbomb position. Farouk throws a chop block, but it's kind of weak. JBL, though, goes to the... Or, God, JBL. Bradshaw goes to the other leg that wasn't clipped by Farouk and kind of kicks him. So now both of Show's legs have been taken out from under him, and he goes down to his knees. X-Pac is still in the powerbomb position, up high, that is. And Bradshaw just gives him a big boot from hell, I guess you would call it, as opposed to the clothesline from hell. And X-Pac flips through the powerbomb scenario, and the crowd goes, Oh! It was just, I mean, it was well done. It was a well done acting sequence from these actors doing performing their craft. I really believed that Sean Waltman, the X-Pac character, was destroyed. And I appreciated the methodology and the showmanship involved with the other individuals to make it happen. And Jesus Christ, Kane was over. He has a, heat, he has a segment here where he takes over the match and just takes everybody out. And, and my God, the crowd is just, I mean, wow. I'm not saying he's like Austin level, but there's got to be some kind of world where Kane, you know, keeps rising and that Royal Rumble 01 is like his coming out party. But again, sounds like a show that you could see. On, sounds like an idea for the multiverse of fabulousness every other Sunday in the North South Connection podcast network. I know a guy who hosts that show, so maybe I'll put a bug in his ear. Taker then says, if I lose, everybody loses. Uh, Lawler asks, uh, or excuse me, Jim Ross asked the Undertaker about his brother Kane being, uh, you know, clearing the house in the ring, and Taker's like half brother. <laughs> I don't know. Big Show though does eventually hit the showstopper on X Pac. It ends that match. It was a very fun segment that got more points than I thought it was going to. Smash cut to the back, and there's no points here, but I have to I have to cover this little segment. 
Stephanie McMahon and her teeth arrive to the arena because, my God, this girl has no acting talent in her bones at this point in her life. And she's just all teeth. That's how she conveys happiness. To me, it's conveying, oh, my God, I don't know how to act, and so I can't help. I'm going to giggle. But here are my teeth, and I'm going to smile. Test is also holding back laughter. And he's like, well, what do you, what do you say, Steph? Are you going to murder me? Because he's very Canadian. Stephanie McMahon has a pretty cool WWF tote bag. I wonder where she got it. Apparently, she has an answer for Test or Andrew, but she's not going to tell him right now. In the ring, the Big Boss Man and Al Snow have an interview-style confrontation where the Big Boss Man says he'll give Pepper back to Snow in exchange for a hardcore title shot. He does humorously say, If that little SOB bites me one more time, I'm going to send him straight to hell and show him hard times. And that's the Big Boss Man in a nutshell for you. We go to commercial at 37 minutes and 55 seconds, so we'll round it up and we'll just call it 38 minutes square. This show has earned 14 points. It needs to earn 28 more to tie the score necessary. And there are only 50 minutes left. And spoiler alert, the next segment is an Al Snow Big Boss Man match. As it stands now, guys, while I am having more fun than I was earlier, I'm still a little concerned. And that Al Snow Big Boss Man match does indeed contribute to our next gaining of points. It's an acting point, and it's point number 15, all right? Now, the Big Boss Man brings Pepper down to the ringside area and hands him to the king. And right away, the king is indicating he is willing to dog sit, but he gets, and I'm doing the finger quotes thing, peed on, and he asks for something to clean it up. It's delivered in a way that's obviously contrived, but I feel like it makes total sense for the king character. Uh, you know, getting, I don't know. It, it's, it's strange. Like here I am giving an acting point to the king for pretending to get peed on by a dog, but sometimes the obvious gag is a fun gag and I'm glad that they went with it. There's a lot of interesting interplay too, uh, where JR is like, well, you love dogs, King. And JR and King's like, I don't like dogs. I love puppies. Also, I should note that Pepper the dog has on a Bane mask. So, uh, you know, immediately after this, he's going to lead a revolution in a major American metropolis against those in power. Um, This is a plunder nonsense hardcore championship match. The next point, though, does uh, make itself available because of the plunder. It's an intangible point. And folks, after this one, I only have one left. And I think it's pretty telling that point number 16 is the fourth intangible point. So that's like, what, a quarter of all the points have been just stuff that I as a person would like? I don't know, guys. I just don't know. But Al Snow is on the top turnbuckle, and he has a ladder set up diagonally next to him, leaning against the uh, ring ropes. The big boss man, Irish whips himself into the ring ropes to make the Al Snow character, like, do the, like, whoa, whoa, fall and rack himself uh, spot. However, momentum has rules uh, as well, all right? And the rules of momentum dictate that the ladder is going to fly upward, legs first, and this ladder goes into business for itself and absolutely murders Ray Trailer, the big boss man. And he goes down like that Frasier guy that the announcer was always yelling about. The down like Frasier, down goes Frasier, that guy. Um, There's a sign in the front row that says Wade Keller lies. I have no, you know, no comment on this. It just made me laugh. Um, 
the next point is a writing point. It's point number 17, and I will admit that I'm reaching here just a little bit, but it's not the worst idea in the world to have your first episode, because I know, figure quotes things, is the first episode of SmackDown on UPN, officially, as a as a real show, to have a title switch. Not a bad idea to do that on your debut show. So having Bossman win the Hardcore Championship from Al Snow, uh, you know, I'll take it. It's a... Um, it's an olive branch to your new audience, I suppose. Pepper does freak out as the big boss man takes him back, and it just makes me wonder if, like other major American television programs, the Humane Society was on set. I'm wondering if that's the case. Do they somehow get to skirt and curtail around the rules because they're a live attraction? They're a fucking... Do they, is there a circus license hanging in Titan Tower that absolves WWF at the time from having to conform to rules of other entertainment properties? Uh, excuse me, Mr. McMahon, we're here from the uh, Humane Society, uh, you know, leveling you with this uh, criminal offense. We're going to need you to appear in court. I'm sorry, gentlemen. You'll notice I have a circus license, which means I'm not legally held to these criteria. Oh, we're so sorry, Mr. McMahon. We're so sorry. You, you big, we, we small. So sorry. So sorry. That's kind of a Wayne's World gimmick there at the end. And all from Mr. McMahon allegedly having a circus license in his office at Titan Tower. The next point is an acting point, and it's awarded to Kane. X-Pac and Kane are in the back in the sweet Cloud City hallway, and X-Pac's saying things like he's the weak link, he's done with the team. And the Kane character goes, Sean! And yells as X-Pac walks away. Now, look, it's cheesy, it's ridiculous, it's a little bit in bad taste, uh, considering what they were trying to say about the Kane character. But I like this Jason Voorhees has a human moment type deal. I like that about the Kane character, and I'm giving an acting point to Glenn for accomplishing this. Y2J walks before commercial for the next segment. The road dog, Jesse James, come out. Good lord, his shtick is over. Have you guys ever noticed how the road dog makes tiny X's when he climbs the turnbuckle? I've always been okay with it. It's never bugged me. But he's got the tiniest X's of all the historical DX members. And I don't have numbers to back this up, but I'm willing to die on that hill. His uh, entrance shtick has a variant, is a variant version because, of course, he's a singles wrestler with no tag team championships. So instead of being the tag team champions of the world, he's T to the R to the U to the E to the D to the O to the double G. And I wish I had a way to take points away, but alas, I don't. Point number 19 arrives on the scene, and it's a directing point. Haven't had one of those in a while. And it's during Chris Jericho's entrance. When the word Jericho splashes on the screen, we are actually viewing that camera feed. Like, we are watching the Titantron video on our screens. When the word Jericho flops out, or flops onto the screen, we all know what it looks like. There's a, a moment of a transition where you can tell we're no longer getting the video feed from the Titantron itself, but we're back in the arena. But the camera pulls back from the Ovaltron in a seamless transition. It's a little thing, but these little things catch my eye, and that's one of the reasons why I love the directing point category, and by God, this earns one. Chris Jericho's metrosexual shtick is fun. It takes me back to a certain time and place that I lived in, so I may be a little bit nostalgic for. I see it as harmless. I don't know if it ages well. I'm not here to, to 
to be the police on that. Um, I certainly am in favor of calling sh- shit and stick out if it hasn't aged well, but I, I just don't know. I'm not sure how to take this. I It didn't bug me, so I don't know. The next point comes, and it's a writing point, and it's point number 20, so we're finally into the 20s. And it might just be because I'm down on the show, but it's a writing point for Jim Ross because he lets us know that we still have Mankind and Shane to come as a match. And again, I might be reaching here because I've been down, but I, it brought sort of a, a ping to my sensations. Like, oh yeah, I forgot we were doing that. So I'm I'm excited for that, and that makes me want to stick around in 2022. So it makes me want to stick around in 1999. The next point is an acting point, and it is awarded to... Uh, let's see here. Oh, wait, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, skip. See, pause here. This segment's about to earn a lot of points, all right? Cat's out the bag. And a lot of it has to do with Chris Jericho, so there are a lot of points for me to make here about points. And yeah, if I say points two more times, that's 46 six points in this fucked up. Hey, it's old. Everybody knows it's old. That's a Limp biscuit joke. Everybody stopped listening, though. It's point number 21, and it's a writing point. And it goes to JR and the King, because during this match between the Road Dog and Chris Jericho, they talk up a lot about computer viruses, computer problems, Y2K, Y2J sort of shtick. And that's really what this early version of the Jericho character was about in its infancy stages, because Jericho was still sort of finding his footing. And I appreciate that. It's a nice little trip down nostalgia lane, uh, having all these early talk of computer viruses, King. King, they want me to talk about computer. I don't even know what the hell computer virus is, King. Can I take my computer to the doctor, King? King, I'm sorry. My computer's just been dealing with its demons. It's not working. <laughs> that's, that's Jim Ross and King Jerry Lawler trying to have an actual personal talk about computers. Point number 22 is an acting point, and it's awarded to Chris Jericho. Chris Jericho's Y2 warrior, the Fink, blinds the road dog, Jesse James, with some liquid during this match. Jericho then gets the heat and gets the acting point by yelling, Come on, baby! I'm just a sucker for come on, baby. I don't care. It's, you know, but it's an acting point. It's not my last intangible. It's an acting point because I think this makes people want to boo Chris Jericho, which makes them want to stick around to see him get his, uh, uh, you know, his comeuppance. I would be remiss also as the road dog does his shaky leg knee drop. Since I mentioned him in the last episode, my No Mercy 2000 character, www.john.com, may have worn, draws his hat, but he also did road dog's shaky leg knee drop. Point number 23 is awarded as an acting point to Mr. Jericho as he does the bombs of Jericho into a table and gets disqualified. But as he's disqualified, while standing in the rubble of the table, he applies the real old school uh, standing version of the walls of Jericho. And by God, did it make me happy. And he looked like a really cool character, you know, murdering the road dog's back, standing in the rubble of this stuff, this table, with a a fleet of referees trying to stop him. I liked it. We cut to the back for acting point number 24. As Chris Jericho and the Fink are reviewing their actions in the previous matchup, the announcer Tony Chimmel is on the, uh, the TV that they're watching, and Jericho encourages his little trooper to go. And as the Fink runs from him, he yells, Go, little trooper, go! And it's just Chris Jericho, early Chris Jericho, that is, being early Chris Jericho. Immediately, I award point number 25, and it's an acting point to the Fink, because as Tony Chimmel starts to begin announcing the next match, 
the Ultimate Warrior theme hits, and Fink sprints down to the ring, runs around the ring, and attacks Tony Chimmel as JR and King yell. It's an announcer's fight. It's corny, but the Fink's given it his all, being a delusional, like, minor wrestling character, and Tony Chimmel gives it his all as well. It's just fun. It's a lot of fun. Eventually, uh, Tony Chimble does sort of kick the Y2 warrior, the Fink, out of the ring, and Jericho does come down to help Howard. Kenny Kenny Shamrock comes down the aisle for the next match and bumps shoulders with Y2J, which leads to point number 26, and it's an acting point, and it's awarded to Howard Finkel. Because after this bump, Jericho starts yelling at the Fink and pointing at Shamrock, and the Fink turns around and does a disgruntled, like, oh, and, like, his shoulders are hanging down low, and he looks just exhausted and absolutely defeated, and he runs towards Kenny Kenny Shamrock like he has nothing left to live for and taps him on the shoulder and starts yelling at him. Eventually, this allows Jericho to take out, uh, you know, Shamrock with a chair, and they chase each other to the back, hyping a match that you and I know will never happen, even though it's announced. Next comes smiling Stephanie McMahon to the uh, to the ring itself. Her outfit is just awful, and she her shoes are the absolute worst. They're very thick. They have a thick heel wedge. It's disgusting. It's the most 2000 thing I've ever seen, and she kind of looks like a religious zealot when you put the entire outfit together, and she has very dead eyes. Now look, I might be leaning into a little bit of her negativities just for fun, And the only reason I'm allowing myself to do it is because I know that regardless of what you might think, Stephanie McMahon becomes a legendary performer. And I don't think there's any, any debate there. And I'm putting my foot down and ow, I just slammed my foot on the ground hoping to make a sound. And I'd recommend not doing that if you're not in a proper foot slamming environment. Test comes down to the ring. I pause the show to make a note and notice we're at exactly 58 minutes We've scored 26 points, seven of which came during segments involving Chris Jericho. Uh, Chris Jericho and the entire Chris Jericho character's package might be the MVP of this presentation when we're all said and done. We have 16 points left to tie and 30 minutes left to do it. Can we get there? I just I don't think I'd done the 24 countdown clock, so I wanted to make sure it get it, in, it it got an inclusion in this episode as well. So now that we're in the ring with Test and Stephanie, that is, we get point number 27, and it is a writing award, and it goes to Jim Ross for putting over the Test character and the Test character's recent athletic performances in the Lover Lever match, and now Test is on his knees again, asking for Stephanie's hand in marriage. Now, while JR is putting over Test um, and getting a point for it, I might add, I still get a feeling like this should be so much bigger. And this is not a, I don't know, I, I try, I'm trying not to use hindsight here, but the Test character is literally asking Stephanie McMahon to marry him. Well, I don't know why I said literally, because here's my point, though, before I get off on a crazy tangent. This should be massive. Vince McMahon, at this point of the game, I believe he's off TV because of Fully Loaded, okay? But he's still the evil billionaire that's been, like, number one or number two most important character on the show basically since the night after Survivor Series 97. And his daughter, 
is has just agreed to marry a prof- one of the professional wrestling characters on the show, and I just feel like it's not being wasted on Tess. This should have just... <sighs> Regardless, okay? I'm just throwing this out there. I don't care if the Test character... You shouldn't have made him the one if you weren't going to make him one of the most important characters on the show. I realize you back out of it later and it turns into nothing more than a casual soap opera B-plot of the week with the amnesia and all that shit. But what a wasted opportunity if you were... I don't know. Now it's like, well... But really, if they did take it all the way, you don't get Triple H and Stephanie, and arguably that's what made the career of Triple H, and regardless of whether or not it was, I don't know. Let's move on. Um, But Tess does ask Stephanie again, will you marry me? And wouldn't you know, she said yes! As Jonah Hill would say in Forgetting Sarah Marshall, fantastic movie. Then again, much like Robocop, if you haven't seen, I'm going to recommend you see it. As she says yes, Jim Ross, in a creepy way, goes, That a girl! You you do it, Stephanie. You go ahead and you marry that man, and that man will take care of you. My God, Stephanie, now you've got a man! A man to feed you! A man to clean you! A man to take care of all the statistics and numbers to run your household, King! Yeah! Oh! Is she going to show him the puppies? That didn't really happen, and... JR didn't really say those horrendous things, but it just kind of is strange that he's so emotionally invested in her journey. The next point is point 28, and it's a directing point, because after Stephanie says yes, she kisses Andrew passionately. And hey, good for you, Andrew. But the point is awarded for directing, because Shane and the Mean Street Posse come out of nowhere and actually start a very serious-looking beatdown on tests that make this feel so much more important. So good for them. And the next point is point 29, and it does go to Jim Ross, and it's a writing point when he indicates that Shane McMahon has broken his word. He's already not adhering to the stipulations of the love her or leave her matchup. I really like that JR says that because it adds a layer of deception uh, to the Shane McMahon character. You know, we know that he's the bad guy. It's been established throughout the narrative of this show. But now he's taken it to another level by not adhering to the contractual stipulations of the match that he was a part of. Now, I suppose one could argue that that makes stipulations seem worthless, but I think it could be a nice way to down-the-line punish the Shane McMahon character or use that as a storyline reason as to why you're able to punish him. I don't know that that's going to happen. I honestly, I have a pretty good memory, uh, which a lot of people would attest to. I'm not just saying... Now I feel really bad now because I'm trying to prove that I have a great... Damn it, guys! I have an awesome memory! I swear! I promise! Um, But all jokes aside, I I do like it. It's another layer of development for that character. I'm going to mention a couple of things that happen now because it leads me directly to the next point. Mankind does come down for the rescue. He has a chair, and he just absolutely murders the Mean Street Posse one at a time with chair shots. It's sickening. Like, poor Pete Gass, like, he does the, like, you know if you're about to be in a car accident and you clinch up and, you know, you kind of, like, brace for impact? Poor Pete Gas does that, just straight in camera view, and I understand where he's coming from. I'm not blaming him or throwing shame at him, but I just know that those chair shots had to fucking hurt, and you can really, really tell. But the reason I'm mentioning all this is because Mankind gets on the stick, and he offers Shane a chance to get back in the ring to start their match, 
because uh, Shane says he's already, or not Shane, Mankind indicates that he's already walked down the aisle twice tonight, and he doesn't feel like walking down a third time. And while I think that's a hilarious uh, little thing to throw in for the Mankind character, I actually kind of believe it too for Mick Foley the person, but that that point that I was going to make is an acting point. And it's after Shane McMahon gets back in the ring and nails Mankind with his free chair shot, he gets an acting point for ad-libbing because he yells, Yeah, I'm the king of hardcore! And that's not like a character trait that the Shane McMahon character, I believe, was trying to get over. That's not a part of where the Shane McMahon character is going. It's just a fun ad-lib. He just randomly yells it for no reason. But that's, you know, that's what acting is. Sometimes you got to throw in an ad-lib. A lot of modern comedies, you know, these modern comedy movies that you uh, you get them uh, and you they end up being two and a half hours long. And you're like, Jesus, isn't that a little long for a comedy? And you just realize, oh, well, they just didn't cut anything out when the actors decided to ad lib and they just left it all in. That's like the uh, three hour version of Knocked Up, for example. It's just, why is it three hours? And it's because Jason Segel and Jonah Hill and... That other guy who's really Canadian, Jay Burchill, that's his name. They're just ad-libbing and, and riffing, if you will. And they nobody ever says cut. So, uh, But Shane McMahon's got a little bit of that ad-libbing in him, too. And <laughs> I also notice as this match uh, continues, and this is not worth any points, it's just a fun thing. I love how Shane McMahon always wears the custom like jerseys and t-shirts to this day. Uh, he's got a Mr. Socko shirt on, but on the back it's draped across in his custom Shane embroidery. Mr. Sucko? <laughs> It's just such easy. Uh, it's an easy gag to make. It's like, what do we do with this shirt? I don't know. It's Mr. Sacco. I guess just call him Mr. Sucko. But again, sometimes just because it's the easiest doesn't make it bad. The next point is point 31, and it's a directing point. And it's just a happy accident, uh, but it does sort of fall into the realm of the overall presentation. So I'm going to go with directing. The two competitors, Shane and Mick Foley, Mankind, end up wrestling over by the announce table, and they pull a bunch of cords, and we get a couple of seconds just without any commentary whatsoever, and it really creates or paints a picture of complete chaos during this hardcore encounter. And I think that's a cool environment to put the audience into, especially if they're coming at this for the very first time. Point number 32 is awarded next, and it's my last intangible point, because... Test gets into it with the um, Mean Street Posse when he comes to, and the Stooges come down the aisle to help Test and Stephanie fight off the Posse. Now, why is this an intangible point, and why is it even worth a point? This really this puts something in my head as the Stooges run down, and, and it's, it has nothing to do with the Stooges themselves, although I, I love them. I think they're great, and it's a, such a fun part of this presentation, but here's what it makes me realize. What a deep roster and a rich tapestry of characters that we have. It really feels like we're living in our own universe where the real world is completely separate from our little wrestling world, okay? Because the 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 Stooges haven't been mentioned at all tonight. Uh not one word has been said about their involvement in the lover her lever match, but it just feels so organic and like, of course they would come down and help the posse. They hate Shane because they're Vince's guys. They're Vince's ass kissers. So they're here to take out Shane's ass kissers. I don't know. Like, if I'm watching Raw tonight 
and Ricochet comes out. I, I use Ricochet a lot. Like, Ricochet and Damian Priest, I'm realizing, because they're like the mid-card guys right now, and they're mid-card guys now because they wrestle for mid-card titles. They don't have characters. Sorry to those guys. I'm not saying they're bad performers. But, like, it's completely organic and makes sense to my what I was trying to say before I defended Ricochet for some reason. If Ricochet comes down and protects... I don't know. Ezekiel from getting beat up by Randy Orton. Uh, these are just like, I, I don't know why. I don't know if like it's a callback to Ricochet's 2018 feud with Randy Orton, which I know probably isn't real. I'm just making shit up. But like, it just makes me really think that they would kill for an organic roster scenario like this in the modern era. And it's a real, real deep separation between the narrative character driven stuff of the attitude era versus the general sports presentation that they have now just just something that really stood out to me and speaking of standing out to me holy shit stephanie mcmahon literally jumps on pete gas's back and starts to like try to choke him out to protect test during this fight and it's fucking fantastic i love it this is stephanie mcmahon's like timid stage but she's here and she's getting physically involved to protect her man, her test, if you will. I love it. It's great. The next point is point 33, and it's based on Stephanie jumping on Pete. It's a writing point because JR and the King are both screaming that this is chaos, and I think it's a, uh, the King who says, This is SmackDown! Like, that was really not the King's voice. I don't know who that was, but that was um, Mark Madden is who it was from WWE Must Die. Sorry, everybody, for the unintentional crossover. But he says, this is SmackDown, JR! Ha-ha! You know, like this... And that tells me, like, this is SmackDown. This is chaos. This is professional wrestling. If I'm new to this, thank you for laying it all out for me, because I'm here now. If you're, you know, keep it score at home. Uh, China and Triple H come down and help Shane to get the one, two, three. They hit Mankind with a chair and Shane, they just put Shane on top of him. But that leads directly into point 34, which is an acting point because there is a fucking fantastic moment as Shane is being walked to the back. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. In that style where uh, he has one arm over Triple H and one arm over China and he's in the middle and they're like walking and carrying him back to the backstage area. The acting points for Shane because they get really close to the top of the ramp and Shane kind of has a moment of realization where he, like, comes to and wakes up. And he looks to his right and he sees Triple H is there. And he's like, hey, wait a minute, you guys are here too? <laughs> like, it's, like, he's just like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, it's just like, yeah. I don't know. It, it's very funny. Uh, it, it made me chuckle quite a bit. It's it's safe to, say that, safe to say that Shane, say that six times fast, might be 1999's best professional wrestling ad-lib guy. I don't know. He's just... It really put a smile on my face. And if you, if you want to talk about smiles on your face, which means making you happy, I guess you could put a bow on this entire segment of saying, it made me happy. Because it did get eight points, and it really felt like for the first time tonight, this show was part of a living, storytelling universe. And it felt tied in with the opening segment and it really felt like we were starting to pay off on the promises of uh, an evening's worth of long-term storytelling that pilot episode from top to bottom 
Every segment felt organic and part of the overall nightly narrative. That hasn't happened until this segment, and I hope these eight points go to illustrate that I was really feeling that as a viewer. I'm not willing to commit to this now, but it's something that's popping into my head as I'm talking about long-term uh, one-night storytelling. Okay, Now, obviously, everyone points to like Deadly Game in terms of pay-per-view and what have you. I sort of feel that the main event from February of 1988 is the best television program that the World Wrestling Federation or Entertainment has ever produced. I'm not saying that SmackDown pilot is better than the main event, but I think in, if you if you really look at that SmackDown uh, pilot special as a one-night storytelling event, as a standalone, here's two hours, give or take, of professional wrestling... I'm putting this in contention for quote-unquote best picture, meaning the best show of storytelling and what have you. It's certainly not the best when it comes to work rate. Um, I guess that's maybe a show for another time. The best pick, WWE best picture. Anywho, that, like I said, we'll put a bow on that topic for another time. So this happens next. And, and again, I, I'm just, there's a few, a lot of time passes between our next point, so I feel like I need to let you all know what happened to not earn points. But again, I hate to dive too deep into the weeds of this program. Um, Howard Finkel gets left behind in the parking lot because Chris Jericho is about to speed away, and <laughs> Fink's like, Chris, 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 please, Chris, please let me in, Chris, please. And Jericho drives away. It's funny. It's funnier than it is point-worthy, okay? Um, but the reason Jericho speeds away is because Chris, Chris Shamrock, <laughs> Ken Shamrock, has found Jericho and the warrior of Jericho. And Shamrock tries to go after the car, but then he goes at, straight to the Fink's face and grabs him, okay? And Shamrock yells at the Fink, don't you ever touch me again. And then takes a big sniff, but because Shamrock's not a very good actor, it's like, what's that? You crap yourself? Like, he doesn't take a moment to let it sink in. He just he just big sniff, what'd you do? Crap yourself? And yes, we're basically doing a re... It's a requel of Dookie from No Holds Barred. But folks, if the Dookie scene in No Holds Barred is worth a is is one, this is like Point two three no holds barred Dookie scene because the Fink doesn't say anything like Dookie, okay? He just kind of falls out of camera frame and slithers to the ground like, oh my goodness, I'm passing out and I shit myself. But Shamrock's, what'd you do, crap yourself? Is no, what's the, what's that smell? And say what you will about the Hulk Hogan performance, the director knew at least to let it linger. Do you have to let it linger? If you're gonna poop yourself on TV, yes, you got to let it linger. 22 minutes left in this as we head to commercial, and we do need eight points to tie. We come back from the commercial to plug some sponsors. And ha! It was Hansen's Energy Drink with X-Pac, because that's the first sponsor. The next sponsor is 1010220, and then JVC Kaboom Box. Is this important? No. But if those three things make you feel nostalgic, that's why I mention them specifically. Michael Cole does a sit-down, previously recorded interview with Stone Cold Steve Austin. 
And it's a basic presentation to let us know that Austin's basically out for like a month because of a knee injury that was pre-existing, but then Triple H made it worse by beating him with a chair at SummerSlam. It's very typical shit. However, they start showing footage of Triple H taking people out. And Michael Cole earns the next point, and it's point thirty-five for writing, by putting this theory into the air, if you will, that... Triple H has developed quite a mean streak in the last month, a very violent mean streak. And some have started to say that Triple H is emulating Stone Cold Steve Austin and emulating him in a way by becoming more aggressive to climb to new heights in the World Wrestling Federation. It is an extremely very interesting concept, and I'm curious if it sticks around. And I'm not saying that to be goofy. I am really Serious. I, I wonder if that's the narrative for the Triple H uh, Austin feud that leads to the you know the car the hit and run blah blah blah. I don't remember that specifically, so I'm I'm curious to see how it goes in the next couple of weeks here on SmackDown. And wouldn't you know, as excited as I am for that, I'm not excited excited for Ivory the Spitfire, if you will, King coming down for an evening gown match. Ivory is the women's champion, and she's in an evening gown match with Tori, the one that's not Wilson. It is billed as an evening gown match, and while Tori is wearing one, or excuse me, Ivory is wearing one, Tori is wearing a long sleeve men's button down WWF Attitude Era signature shirt. It's kind of like she spent the night with Johnny Ace. She spent the night at Johnny Ace's house, and then like sexily put it on afterwards. Ah, Tori, Tori, we put on my shirt. Wow, I'm about to cough and everybody's here. I should not do a Johnny Ace impression. I'm leaving this all in, though. <coughs> Podcasting. It's fantastic. I'm never doing a John Laurinaitis impression again, by the way. Whoa, that was pretty crazy. But I'm feeling better now. So I feel like I can give you the results of the match. Tori. Not Tori Wilson, that is. She wins in like a minute. And then Luna saves Ivory from a big beatdown. And I'm, I don't want to talk about an evening gown match, but I will say that Ivory's in really good shape. Lillian Garcia interviews Triple H in China. Lots and lots of game talk here. He also indicates, that being Triple H, pal, that he's going to cripple the heartbreak kid if he steps out of line. Triple H in China walk to the main event. The Rock walks to the main event. And here's the reason why I'm going into great detail. The Heartbreak Kid walks to the main event. Now, Shawn Michaels is also wearing his Shawn Michaels Wrestling Academy t-shirt. Okay, that's fine. Nothing wrong with a little self-promotion. And don't forget, each week here in the Aqua Cave, we're bringing you Stream Fighter 2, where we cover review, and talk about streaming content that's recently been released, like Obi-Wan Kenobi, for example. Or coming up, Ms. Marvel, just to give you a little inkling of how that show works. Here's the kicker, though, all right? Here's the real reason. He turns around as he's walking, lifts his ponytail so he can show what's written on the back of the shirt. And what's written, in kind of a genius move, is the telephone number to register for his wrestling academy so this is the phone number that you call and you talk to the person on the other end 
you probably give them your personal information, maybe even make a first payment towards the class and register. I don't know. But here's the absolute kicker, folks. In the most professional wrestling thing of all time, the registration number is 1-900-3-2-TRAIN. 1999 Shawn Michaels having a 900 number just to register to train is the most pro wrestling thing of all time. Is it like the Corey Hotline from The Simpsons? Hey, this is the Heartbreak Kid Pops. And you want to wrestle like Heartbreak Kid? Well, Vin Man, the first thing you're going to need to do is tell me your name. That's my attempt to show Michael's doing a slow pre-recorded message. Al Snow is in the back and he cannot find Pepper. The strangest assortment of individuals in the history of sports entertainment are congratulating Stephanie McMahon and Andrew Test Martin, Jimmy Corderas, Earl Hebner, and Michael Cole. And Test makes a snide comment to Earl that he expects a very expensive gift from Mr. Hebner. Is this a reference to the fact that on the side, Earl's selling bootleg merchandise and Tess knows about it? Um, I don't know. The Heartbreak Kid comes down to the ring to be the referee and he's stumbling. Yikes. Triple H and China make their entrance and China is so much cooler than Triple H. During this entrance though, finally, the reason for all this reference, it's point number 36 and it's a writing point. Jim Ross puts over the fact that it's been a crazy week for the World Wrestling Federation Championship title. It started with Austin, it went to Foley, and now it's on Triple H. And he's doing this to set up the feeling that we better stay tuned because it could change again. And I think that's a pretty smooth move. We immediately uh, enter point number 37, and it's a directing point. As The Rock has made his way down to the ring, and he's on the turnbuckle doing his pose. Right as he starts his pose, we cut to a wide shot, and it's that WWF Championship graphic. Why does it get the point for directing? Because we know that the crowd's going to pop when The Rock hits the top of that turnbuckle, so it ends up synchronizing the pop with the words WWF Championship. It's a nice little subtle subtext move to let the audience know to get really excited. The bell rings with literally 11 minutes and 20 seconds left in the show, and that's literally right as point number 38, another directing point, comes into play. It is the iconic shot of The Rock and Triple H face-to-face with the SmackDown banner hanging in the background. I guarantee you've seen it before. You may not have known that that's what this was, a face-to-face from the first week-to-week episode of SmackDown, but by gum, here it is, and we need only four points to tie as the main event begins. In a nice touch of continuity, Jim Ross is extra salty on commentary during this match, saying things like, oh, I respect the WWF Championship, not the WWF Champion, and what have you. Kind of putting over, again, and reiterating on commentary that JR is still bitter about being attacked by Triple H on Raw. These competitors get to the outside, okay? And it just feels like every main event that I've ever reviewed on the WCW Must Die show, and I don't mean that as a compliment, I don't want my my own saltiness, because I'm not salty towards this episode of SmackDown. I am very disappointed in this episode of SmackDown. Um, 
So I guess maybe that's sort of why I reiterate that point. Speaking of points, point number 39 comes, and it's a writing point. And I'm reaching a little bit here, but, you know, like I said, I'm kind of angry that they're outside wrestling, and, and they've been outside for a few minutes even, and there's just no structure here. But Shawn Michaels has followed them outside, and he's admonishing these guys on the ramp as they battle, and that at least explains away the no countout. So that's a writing point for that one. And the crowd is very quiet, even though the combatants are doing stunts. No, they're not really doing stunts, but they are, are doing brawling on the outside. Point number 40 comes, and it is a writing point, and it goes to Jerry the King Lawler of all people, because he compares the brutality and intensity of Triple H during this outside brawling to the intensity of Stone Cold Steve Austin, keeping that narrative alive that I mentioned I was very interested in. This narrative that Triple H is just ascending the same way that Stone Cold did back in his rise. And I really, like I said, I, I beat that. I don't want to beat that in the ground, but that's the one plot thread that I really am finding interesting out of this entire show. If nothing else, I'm grateful that I watched this show so I can see if that thread continues. China eventually gets tossed for low-blowing uh, The Rock, just like Jesse Ventura tossed her at SummerSlam. Shane is here now, and the crowd is audibly much more fired up because he is at ringside. It proves to me that this audience has been trained to wait for all the chess pieces to be in play before they get excited about a potential finish. I, I don't, that, you know, I'm not saying that as a judgment. I'm not saying that as a positive. It's just an interesting thing that I'm picking up as I'm watching. Point number 41 comes, oh, we're getting close now, and it's a writing point because Jerry the King Lawler, again, with a point, wonders if HBK can even toss Shane McMahon because of the power structure involved, with Shawn being the commissioner and able to book matches, and in this match, the referee, but Shane still the owner. They don't really resolve this, but again, I think it's an interesting piece of information to share with the audience um, because it's world building, and I think that's important. Um, normal TV shows do it all the time. You know, when the, the femme fatale mentions she, casually she had an ex-boyfriend named Brad, and then three episodes later, Brad shows up and gets into the fold. And sorry if your name's Brad, but you sound like an ex-boyfriend that shows up three weeks later. Now we have a rest hold, and, you know, the match is really draining me. Not from perspective of it's bad, just it's not it's not everything I thought it would be, but... Finally, we get into a finishing sequence, and you lucky bastards, you get point number 42 to tie. And it's a, and I'm a little salty that they're tying, but I have to be honest with the point distribution. It's a directing point, because The Rock hits the spine buster, he does his hand arm movements, hits the ropes, goes to the other rope, goes to drop the people's elbow, and out of nowhere, and this is why it's a directing point, we get the people's sweet chin music into the frame. It's a super kick party. Uh, party of one? I said party really close to one another, but who cares? Yes, Shawn Michaels reveals his true allegiance and hits the sweet chin music on The Rock. Does it make sense given the entire narrative of the show? I'm not sure, 
but it's 1999, and I'm wondering if this is the only time that Shawn Michaels and The Rock actually get into a physical altercation with one another. I have no evidence to back this up, but if it is, it's kind of a, a moment in history and a moment in time. Uh, pedig- Kickwham pedigree, one, two, three. Another point is awarded. It's a writing point because JR yells, we've got a crooked commissioner, and that is another wrinkle to the overall narrative, and it makes me want to tune in next week. China comes back as the heels celebrate and gives Shawn Michaels a really big hug, which does give me the feels, reminding me of good old 1997 Degeneration X. And to add extra insult to injury, as the heels all leave, Shawn Michaels backs into the top rope and casually flips over like, oh man, my, yeah, my back hurts a lot. I'm just kidding. I'm not trying to stick it to Shawn. 1999 Shawn Michaels is a riddle wrapped inside an enigma wrapped inside a question mark. The copyright hits as the heels celebrate. And it looks like we've got a total score of 43, which is one over where we need it to be. So technically speaking, the potent numbers that I've unveiled this week do indicate that this SmackDown episode earned its viewership. A side personal note. I realize that here we are in the main event segment getting to where we need to be. And it feels a little suspect because we did the same thing in the first episode. But I am going to be honest with you as listeners. When the moment, when the right, when I, as I'm watching these shows and the right moment comes to award one of these points, it's, it feels very serendipitous. Almost as if, well, they must have known that all these years later I'd be doing a, a, a review uh, in this structure based on this show because they hit the points when they need to. I was going to, I was very, very stingy in this main event segment. Because I knew that they could easily get the victory if I quote-unquote allowed them to. Um, I wasn't being unfair, but I was of the mindset that if I'm going to give them points that's going to allow them to win, they really need to earn them. And I feel like the distribution in the main event segment was fair and balanced. Didn't want to use that in a sentence. And so I'm not salty that they got to the points that they needed to. But in terms of an overall one-night narrative... This was nowhere near the pilot. And honestly, I feel like the WWF has failed its new audience. I don't know if it was a certain level of comfort that the company had, but I feel like it's a real missed opportunity to just come out of the gate firing on all cylinders. It's possible they didn't want to create something they couldn't possibly live up to every week. But this is, I feel like, again, this is the kind of shit that Vince McMahon is like a booker or a showman or a three-ring circus leader, whatever gag you want to make about it. This is the kind of shit that he lives for. A big premiere on a new network station of a brand new show that he was going to bring us every week. And and by no means is this episode of SmackDown like bad, It's just when I have one other thing to compare it to, it's clearly not on the level of that pilot. And it's just just a misfire, and it makes me feel like my thesis is wrong. But I'm also seeing this as a positive moment in the history of this project, because is this episode the catalyst for wanting to get a little bit crazier or a little more, 
off the beaten path and outside the norms of a weekly wrestling show as we move forward. Because we know, if you know, big moments and big paywall type style stuff is coming for free on UPN. And so I guess that's where I'll leave our teaser. This is going to wrap up episode two of Unveiling Potent Numbers. I cannot thank you enough for hanging out with us here in the Aqua Cave. And I hope that this has laid the groundwork for where this project is moving forward. Uh, And I hope that you'll come back and visit us the next time that we unveil these very potent numbers here on UPN, the SmackDown 6.